one God forever and ever and ever and ever. Amen. So today we are continuing a series called Living Hope. Um, We're going to be celebrating communion, the Mass, the Eucharist, the Lord's Supper in a few minutes. But this series, Living Hope, it's a series about the evidence of the resurrection. You see, central to Christian identity is not merely religious traditions or even a sacred text. No, central to Christian identity is the event of the resurrection. Now, if you're interested in learning about the historical evidence for the resurrection and its deeper theological meaning, I recommend N.T. Wright's massive 800-page volume, The Resurrection of the Son of God. That, that, that ought to get you started. But that is not what this series is about. See, this series is about the practical evidence of the resurrection, the personal evidence of the resurrection, the concept that Jesus has been raised from the dead and the church is the evidence of that new creation reality. I believe that if you are a Christian, if you are a follower of Jesus, then that means that you are evidence of the resurrection. And the application has never been that Jesus has been raised from the dead and therefore you and I can go to heaven when we die. Uh, The good news is so much better than that. The real application of the resurrection is what we do in the here and now as a result of that event. As Christ followers, we're called to build for the kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. And where does that exactly play out? It plays out in our homes and our families and our schools and our workplaces and our communities. Uh, Wherever we do life, we're called to live like Jesus has been raised from the dead. We're called to live like we have been raised from the dead. I thought uh, Kendall's message last week was, was so powerful. She challenged us to consider the seasons in our lives that come and go, the things that need to end, and the things that we need to take bold steps following God to begin. And next week, we're going to hear from my friend Jay Davies, who will be with us to tell us about the, the organization that he just recently founded called Greater Than Ministries, which seeks to help others see God grow bigger in their lives. This week, however, I want us to have a fresh look at something that is probably quite well known to you. It, it isn't just a Bible story, it's a parable that Jesus told that's found its way into the folklore of the past 2,000 years and has even given us common vernacular that may not seem connected to the Bible, that you may not even know is connected to the Bible. In fact, It's one of those Bible stories that even if you're completely unfamiliar with the Bible, you might have heard somewhere and not even known, you might have heard about it somewhere and not even known that it was a part of Scripture. Someone aids another person in a noteworthy way, and you read about it in the paper. Good Samaritan aids man in trouble. You've heard the story, well, my car broke down and I couldn't find my jack, but a good Samaritan stopped and helped me out. Or, you know, a good Samaritan let me use their phone. 
Uh, there are good Samaritan hospitals, hospitals like the one we have in Baltimore all over the country. The term Samaritan has come to mean a person who helps another in a time of need. And it's important right off the bat for us to know that this is not what it meant in Jesus' day. In fact, in Jesus' day, the good Samaritan, the term good Samaritan, would have been an outrageous oxymoron. Turn with me to Luke chapter 10, beginning in verse 25. Luke says, And behold, a lawyer stood up and put Jesus to the test. Now, some of your translations may have an expert in the law instead of lawyer. Essentially, this was someone who supposedly had authority in the Mosaic law, in the area of the Mosaic law. The message even translates it religious scholar. Earlier in Luke's story, he lumps these lawyers in with the Pharisees. The point is, as Luke also makes, that this guy wasn't seeking a lesson from Jesus. He was trying to put Jesus on the spot. And if you read the Gospels, you'll begin to see that putting Jesus on the spot doesn't work out too well for many. The challenge was that Jesus had begun to teach as if he was the one who had authority over the law itself. And for someone to make their livelihood from being an expert in the law, you can understand how this lawyer kind of felt threatened, right? This lawyer looks at Jesus and says, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Or, or that phrase could be, What must I do to inherit the life of the coming age? This was a common rabbinic question. This lawyer is giving Jesus a litmus test in order to try and ply something heretical out of him. But Jesus put that test right back on this lawyer, and he says, well, what's written in the law? How do you read it? I love that last part. I love that. Do you see what Jesus did there? Not only does he ask this law expert what the ancient text actually says, he asked this lawyer to interpret it. Well, well, how do you read it? The Mosaic law is long and it's complicated and this concept of eternal life is even more complicated. Um, how, do you simply, um, how do you simplify such big issues like that? Uh, I mean, imagine if you, um, if you knew someone who went to Harvard Law and they spent studying uh, years studying the intricacies of the American legal system. And they get hired at a, a prestigious law firm. And one day you're sitting around and you ask them to sum up the point of the American law. What does it mean to be a law-abiding American citizen? And maybe they quote to you the preamble of the Constitution. Or maybe they say the First Amendment. The point is that you're asking this person who has evidently spent their life studying the law to give you a handle that you can hold on to. And the truth is that what they give you wasn't entirely unpredictable. That's what this lawyer does. He says, well, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your strength and with all your mind. Now, he's not just making this up. He's quoting something specific that would have been extremely common to anyone in earshot. He's quoting the action portion of the Shema. The Shema was an ancient prayer of Israel from Deuteronomy 6. You can turn there if you'd like. 
um, that first declared, the first part of the Shema declares, Hear, O Israel, the Lord God is one. And then it goes on with that second part that the lawyer quoted. According to Deuteronomy, Israel was supposed to internalize this message. Right after those words in Deuteronomy, it says, And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be the frontlets between your eyes, frontlets like the the ornaments that hang off of an altar. You shall write them on the doorposts of your home and on your gates. These words, they gave Israel their theology. God is one, except those substitutes, but they also gave Israel their mission to, the, to love God and to teach future generations to do the same. So all of that was quite standard. Here's the trick, though. The lawyer adds a tag that he seems to be quoting from Leviticus 19.18. You can turn to Leviticus 19 if you want. There it says, You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Now, the way the lawyer used it seems to imply that he's lumping this loving your neighbor business into the Shema, which might not have been that outrageous considering he was just quoting from another part of the Torah. And since the text of Deuteronomy seems to define neighbor as the sons of your own people, it appeared that all Leviticus wanted was for Israel to look out for their own, which was exactly the kind of thing that Deuteronomy wanted. So Jesus gives it to the guy. He says, you've answered correctly. Do this. Do this and you will live. Okay. So now the lawyer thinks he has Jesus right where he wants him. Turns out this never was about getting Jesus to affirm the Shema or even Leviticus. Verse 25 says, But the lawyer, desiring to justify himself or or desiring to come out on top in this interaction, this lawyer, desiring to justify himself, says to Jesus, Who's my neighbor? Ah, now we've finally come to it. All this talk about Torah and the Shema and Mosaic Law, it it was all just a setup to try to trap Jesus in the corner. He wanted to know if Jesus was loyal to Israel. And while at this point in the ministry, Jesus was primarily focused on Israel, he was also doing some things that kind of seemed to cast a wide net. In fact, just a few weeks ago, back in Luke 9, Jesus and his disciples had planned to stay in a, in a Samaritan village. Those filthy Samaritans rejected him, of course. But what, what, what was he doing wanting to hang around them in the first place? This lawyer is thinking, we need to get to the bottom of this, Jesus. We need to know where your loyalty is. And that's just the thing. I believe that the way Jesus responds to the question who is my neighbor, is going to tell everyone exactly where his loyalties are. Jesus doesn't respond with a lecture. He responds with a story. He says, once upon a time, 
A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. The desert road that stretched between Jerusalem and Jericho was a rocky, dangerous road that had lots of twists and turns that were made useful to thieves who lurked in the corners waiting to rob travelers. A lone traveler would have been quite an ideal target. But this was not a surprising part of the story. Like many of Jesus' parables, he begins with something that would have been very familiar to the audience. He lands first on a common denominator of emotion that anyone listening to him could have related to. In fact, it might be interesting to note that because this was so common a situation, those listening to the story might already be kind of processing who it was that they could presume was the robber. You might have heard someone in the crowd kind of mutter under their breath, it was probably one of those Samaritans. Maybe someone just checked out immediately at that point of the story, assuming that the point of Jesus' story was to comment about how bad the world has gotten these days. Can't believe what this world is coming to. But Jesus continues. Now, by chance, a priest was going down that road. And when he saw him, he passed by the other side, gave him a wide berth. So likewise, a Levite, When he came to the place and saw him, he passed by on the other side. So here, Jesus is turning up the volume a bit, but but maybe not quite in the way that we might think. We might want to think that Jesus is drawing attention to two individuals who are kind of like likely candidates to, um, to help a man in need, but actually priests and their Levite assistants were under strict orders to not touch anything dead. If they thought this man was still alive, it would have been nice for them to help him, of course, but if they thought he was dead, it would have unfortunately made sense that they passed him by, giving him a wide berth. I think sometimes we assume that the priest and the Levite were pretentious religious types who thought that they were too important to help someone in need, and that may very well have been true, but I think perhaps the thing that I take away from this detail is that the priest and the Levite, they lost hope. They didn't have enough hope to take the risk that this man might already be dead. As priests, their identity would have been rooted in the temple. But Jesus had said elsewhere that something far greater than the temple is here. As we saw in Galatians, the law was a fine babysitter, a guardian helping the people of God stay on the obedient path of righteousness. But the time had come to give way to something new. Now something greater than the law will come of age. In fact, it was the thing that the law was itself pointing to, this whole thing, this whole time. Uh, I think the, 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 the final part of this parable shows something of what it means to live the eternal kind of life now. So Jesus continues. Priest walked by, gave him a wide berth. Levite walked by, gave him a wide berth. I've heard already a couple of you mutter about the possibility that Robert might have been a Samaritan, but how about this? 
but a Samaritan. As he journeyed, he came to where he was, and he saw him, and he had compassion. He went to him. He, he bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And then he set him onto his own animal and brought him to an inn to take care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii, the equivalent of two days' salary, and gave them to the innkeeper saying, take care of him and whatever you spend, I will repay you when I come back. The level of care that this Samaritan shows to this man cannot be overstated. I love that it says that he had compassion. He was moved with love and pity from his inmost being. It's been said that compassion is always active in some way. Otherwise, it's merely sympathy. And sympathy just doesn't change the world. Compassion involves empathy. Compassion involves um, uh, being with. Sympathy can be directed at this man on the road, but empathy and compassion drives the Samaritan to be with this man. I love how it says that he went up to him and bound his wounds. See, this, this was a parable, and we don't get names. Names aren't important because we might as well put our own names in there. We don't get much details, but we do hear from Jesus' lips that this Samaritan approached this man and bound up his wounds with his own two hands. He didn't just make sure this guy was alive, throw him some bandages, and set him up for somebody else to find him. I think that one of the most incredible things that this Samaritan gave to this man was his time. Jesus makes a special point to say that he poured oil and wine. He didn't just give him a taste or a dab on some wound. He was extravagantly generous with this man. Not to mention oil and wine. That, that sounds an awful lot like the kind of thing a priest would use. Could, be, could Jesus be saying something here about how religious leadership and worship in the new covenant is actually going to be quite different from the old? And isn't it funny that the first thing the lawyer said was that his responsibility was to love God, right? Quoting the Shema. Maybe the care that the Samaritan showed this man on the side of the road is an example of what it looks like practically with your hands to love God with all your mind and soul and strength. Of course, it just didn't stay on the side of the road. The Samaritan puts this man on his own animal and guides him to a nearby end. The bottom line is that it would have been unthinkable that a Samaritan would give a cup of water to a Jew, and vice versa. But now we have this image of a Samaritan bandaging this man's wounds with his own hands and then going to lengths to get this man on his own animal. I don't know if you've ever tried to move a grown man. It's not easy. And there's certainly no like graceful way of doing it. If this guy had been bloodied and bandaged, there's no way that the Samaritan wouldn't have gotten some of that blood on him while he helped get this guy 
onto his own animal. In this honor-bound society, the mere visual of a Samaritan guiding his own animal while carrying this bloody Jew is outrageous. Jesus cranks up this volume to 11 when he has the Samaritan take this guy to an inn, gives him two days' wages, and promises to check back on him later and pay any other future expenses that might be necessary. At this point, Jesus returns to the lawyer and looks him in the eye and says, Now, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And don't you just love that a part of the question includes the phrase, Do you think? The lawyer had already interpreted, this this expert in the law had already interpreted the law, and he coughed up the schma when Jesus asked him uh, what he thought about eternal life. Now he's asking him to interpret Jesus' parable, and here's the story, Uh, how do you read it? Who ended up being a neighbor to this child of Abraham? The lawyer, he can't even say the word Samaritan. He can only mutter under his breath, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus, not losing eye contact, says, you, you go and do likewise. The question, who is my neighbor? Who do you hate? Who is it that for you the thought of empathizing with them seems impossible? Who is it that for you personally it would turn your stomach to think of them helping you the way the Samaritan helped that man? I think that the challenge for us today as we read this 2,000-year-old parable is to respond to it in a way that leaves our heart open to the work that God would do as he transforms our heart to be more like his. That response, it's not an easy fix. I love it how Jesus said, you you go and do likewise. I think perhaps the lawyer, perhaps before the lawyer could actually get to the point where he's loving his neighbor, maybe he needed to do the act of neighboring. Just try on love for a size and see how it feels. That's the kind of progressive response we need, one that listens to the Holy Spirit and aids those who are in our path. I think a response like that is far better than a reaction, a reaction that will either lead us grumpy about trying to make excuses about why we don't have the resources or the time or, the, or, or whatever, why we shouldn't help this person in need, or guilty. Guilty for the next two hours, but then tomorrow we forget about it. And we think that, you know what, it's far more important for me to live my life than to worry about some bloody man on the side of the road. Let us respond to this parable in a way that puts God at the center of our love, rather than react to it in a way that puts us at the center of it. We're going to take communion now, the Mass, the Eucharist, the Lord's Supper. The Lord's table is the ultimate example that He gave us towards this community of radical inclusivity. You see, everybody's got a seat at the Lord's table. 
Bring your baggage. Bring your pain. Bring your joy. Bring, bring your appetite. As we do this today, continue to pray about who it might be. Who is it that if Jesus told this parable to you, they would be the Samaritan? Who would be the other that he's calling you to name neighbor? Who would be the other that he's calling you to name brother? Who would be the other that he's calling you to name sister? Our communion table at New Hope, it's open to all who call and confess Jesus as Lord and if you're not there yet, you need to know that we love you and that we're so glad you're with us. We hope that New Hope can be a place where you can wrestle with doubts and that you should feel no obligation or pressure to participate unless you want to. As I do each time before we celebrate communion, I will add that this is one of two sacraments that Jesus instituted. The other is back baptism. Baptism is the proclamation of our faith in Jesus so if you find yourself coming forward for communion and you haven't yet been baptized, that's okay, but I'll ask that you come to me after service and discuss the possibility of being baptized soon. Actually, we're going to have a baptism celebration this summer. Looking forward to that. For now, please uh, stand and read together as churches throughout the centuries have done in the reading of the Nicene Creed. We believe in one God, Father the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all that is seen and unseen. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten not made, of one being with the Father. Through him all things were made. For us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven. By the power of the Holy Spirit, he became incarnate from the Virgin Mary and was made man. For our sake, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried. On the third day, he rose again in accordance with the scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son. With the Father and the Son, he is worshipped and glorified. He has spoken through the prophets. We believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come.